there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. This third talk is entitled A Father's Forgiveness. And I know that uh, some of you are probably thinking, well, this is the strangest series on prayer. She's not telling us how to pray or when to pray or what about the answers and all that. I'm just trying to give you some principles which have come to me through the years of trying to learn to pray. And the older I get, I think the simpler I get, the more I do really believe that he is my father and I'm a child. And I need to just learn to come to him with this trusting dependence, just an utter wholehearted surrender of myself each day. That's a decision that can be made, I think, once and for all, but it has to be validated and ratified day after day in the way we live. So <clears throat> we now come to that phrase, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. As I said last night, I really see the Lord's Prayer as being the perfect and all-inclusive model for prayer, as we would expect it should be, since the disciples asked, Lord, teach us to pray, and this was his answer. This is the way you are to pray, he said. When you pray, say this. I don't think we need to worry about vain repetitions, assuming that anytime we repeat the same words, it's vain. It doesn't have to be vain at all. In fact, it's probably much more likely to be effective since they're not words that we thought up all by ourselves. Spontaneity doesn't come out of a very deep well of experience and spirituality for most of us, so it helps me to use not only these words that Jesus specifically gave his disciples by way of instruction for prayer, but also the prayers of the New Testament. And I have a little notebook of my own in which I've copied out all of the prayers of the New Testament. So when I don't know what to pray for people, I very often use them. In fact, I have, I've arranged them now in a sort of an order for the 30 days of the month uh, with the names of certain people with each of those prayers so that I keep repeating these prayers, but I trust that the Holy Spirit takes these prayers, adds his own intercessions, and I try to invest the prayers with anything specific that I happen to know about the person, which isn't very often because so many of the people on my list are so far away, I have no idea what their needs are, but it, it is a great help, I think, to use written prayers. There is no more rich source of, writ of written prayers than hymns. So as you radio listeners have heard me say probably many times, I strongly recommend that you keep a hymn book along with your Bible and your journal, if you keep a spiritual journal, and use the hymns as prayers. They're full of powerful stuff 
far beyond what most of us could think of all by ourselves. It's not hypocrisy to be praying somebody else's words. You can mean the words, and if you feel that you can't mean the words, as I began to feel when I was about 14 and was singing that favorite hymn of mine, Beneath the Cross of Jesus, when I came to those words, I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of his face. I said to myself, I'm lying, because I can think of all kinds of sunshine besides the sunshine of his face that I want. I want a husband and a home and children, and I want to be a missionary, and I want this and that and the other thing. But I began to see that I could pray those prayers asking the Lord to help me make them real and help me lead me on in the spiritual life so that they would ultimately become the prayer, the honest prayer of my heart. And one of the hymns that fed me spiritually during my college years was, Oh, teach me what it meaneth, that cross uplifted high. And God began to answer that prayer. We never know what it is going to involve. So when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we have to come down to that phrase, forgive us our trespasses, but he doesn't stop with that. There isn't any period. How do we forgive another person who has trespassed against us? We're asking God to forgive us in the same measure in which we are willing to forgive that person who did something unforgivable. Have you thought about that? It's a pretty solemn thought to realize that I'm saying, Lord, I will accept from you the same measure of forgiveness for my trespasses that I am willing to offer to this person who has really hurt me. My son-in-law was teaching a Bible class on, I think, one of the Psalms that had something to do with forgiveness, and he hadn't even begun to quit preaching and start meddling with the people and pointing out personal ways in which this might be applied when one of the women in the group just burst out with no provocation as far as he knew, I will never forgive my mother-in-law. And he said, you will never forgive your mother-in-law? And he, she said, no, not after what she did to me. I don't care what you say about what the Bible says about forgiveness. You're never going to persuade me that I have to forgive my mother-in-law. Hmm, you have to think about that one. Any of you ever had that feeling that, well, this thing is really unforgivable? Now, the essence of evil is the repudiation of our dependence upon God and the insistence that I am my own. And here again is one of those things that's very hard for us 20th century people to accept, that we are not our own, because the world is telling us in no uncertain terms, very insistently, very convincingly, you got to be your own person. I got to be me. I saw the movie star Cher on a talk show one day, and I never heard such 
rubbish, such garbage, such balderdash in my life because the interviewer kept trying to get Cher to define who she is. And poor Cher, I mean, she didn't have the foggiest idea. And she was simply telling the whole world that she was trying to find out who she is. And she's been on film for all these years and very much in the public eye. And she said that, well, I don't know, you know, I just uh, really feel that uh, there's a whole new direction in my life now. And I'm trying to find out who I am. And, well, um, I've just, I've got to be me. And I'm just not really sure who this me is, and there are likely to be some real shockers coming out in my next films because I'm in this process of discovery. And I mean, it went on and on till I mean, it was so boring that you couldn't believe. And I thought, there is no way that Cher is going to find out who she is until and unless she finds out who God is. John Calvin, in the introduction to his great theological works, says something to this effect. I don't have the exact quote, but it is in the process of discovering who God is that we learn to know ourselves. And if you're anything like me, it is a very uncomfortable business to be finding out who I am. And God shows me more than I can stand about that. I don't really want all that information. So instead of directing my energies inward to find out who I am, I would much prefer to direct my energies to God and find out who he is and let him reveal to me anything that he needs to reveal to me because he will be there to deal with it. I wouldn't be able to deal with it by myself. But the essence of evil is the repudiation of my dependence upon God and the insistence, I am my own. I am my, my own person. I got to be me. I've got to do my thing. I owe it to myself. Have you ever heard that? Can you find one shred of scripture that tells us that we owe anything to ourselves? The true man and the true woman gives up his right to himself. That's being true to ourselves, just laying ourselves down. So I'll give you three things now, and I'm going to have to be rather brief with these in order to take time for the questions. Number one is, prayer is a revelation of my sinfulness. Number two, it is a revelation of God's merciful love. And number three, it leads me to forgive others. Now, as I learn to pray, God reveals to me how far short I fall of the glory of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. A vision of his holiness entails a vision of my filthiness, my unworthiness, and much worse, my worthlessness. And you remember that in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah had a vision of the holiness of God, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, and the posts of the doors shook. A picture 
visible picture of, of holiness, visible signs of an invisible reality. And Isaiah's reaction was, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. And then it was God revealing himself in his own holiness and revealing Isaiah's self to him, but God was there to deal with that. Immediately, the angel flew with a coal from the altar and touched those unclean lips so that Isaiah was cleansed and fit to be God's mouthpiece, God's prophet. So it is a revelation of my sinfulness. One night, not very long after Lars and I had been married, he hurt me in some way. I can't for the life of me remember anything about what it was, but it was one of those nights when I went to bed angry. And the Bible says you're not supposed to go to bed angry. If you're still angry, then go, don't go to bed, but we did. And I was on my side, and I did not want him touching me by so much as a fingernail. And I knew that he knew that he was, had been very nasty to me. Now, you cannot imagine Lars Grin being nasty to anybody. You meet this gracious, laid-back southern gentleman, and he is a very gracious and laid-back southern gentleman, but there are times when I undoubtedly needle him to the point of anger. <laughs> and I am a hard person to live with. As my headmistress told me when I was 14 years old, she pointed her bony finger at me and she said, Betty Howard, you are impossible to live with, and we do not need you in this school. We will give you a free ride down to the train station. We will help you pack your bags. Now that, you know, what does that do to your self-image? Back then I was glad I didn't know I was supposed to have one, but um, that wasn't all. She spent two hours stripping, tearing strips off me and telling me all this. But anyway, on this particular night, as I lay there in bed, stiff as a board, hands to my sides, tears running into my ears, thinking this man has wronged me, and I am going to be perfectly silent until he apologizes because he knows that he's the one that was wrong in this case. And so there was a thundering silence. And guess what? <laughs> That's what it was. He was sound asleep. He not only wasn't going to apologize, he wasn't even the slightest bit aware, couldn't care less, he didn't know he'd hurt me. Well, then I really was furious. And while the tears were running into my ears, the steam was coming out. And I was all but on the point of just giving him a terrific jab in the ribs and waking him up to say, you know, we are not going to go to sleep on this thing. And, of course, he would have said, on what thing? <laughs> he would have had the slightest idea. Well, the Lord got through to me that night, and I got out of my bed, and I went into another room, and I opened my Bible and did the thing that I knew God was telling me to do. And I opened to 1 Corinthians 13, and I read, Love is patient. Love is kind. And I thought, well, he's not being patient, he's not being kind. And then the Lord got through to me and said, how about putting your name in there for change? And so I began to read it with Elizabeth in place of the word love. 
Elizabeth does not envy, does not boast, is not proud. Elizabeth is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. And I knew that this was a travesty. It was a screaming farce. I was keeping records of wrong. I was adding this one more thing to my list, which at some point I would trot out when he did something really bad, then I would be, be able to go back over it and say, and this, and this, and this, and another thing. Love is not a feeling, it's action. And so God revealed to me through prayer my sinfulness. It wasn't Lars at that point that I had any business with whatsoever. God was dealing with me and saying, what kind of a wife are you? You're the one that wrote this book, Let Me Be a Woman. And it was very interesting that it was between husbands numbers two and three that I wrote that book. And it was as if God was saying, do you really believe all this stuff that you've been going around the country telling other women about? Have another go at it. Make sure that you really put this into practice. And of course, Lars has the advantage of having that book in writing, and he can say to me, as you said here on page 75, It's time to start over with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Do I hallow the name of God in the way I treat my husband? Is his name glorified and made holy through my behavior? Obviously, it was not. Thy kingdom come. How is God's kingdom going to come unless there is love? Thy will be done. God's will for a wife is not to see to it that her husband loves her as Christ loved the church. May I see the hands of those wives who are married to men who have perfectly loved them as Christ loved the church. Now you men, quit jabbing your wives in the ribs and telling them to put their hands up. There isn't a man that's ever done that, but it's not the job of, our, of us wives to be their moral custodians. God is not asking me why Lars did what he did to me. God is asking me, what was your response? And God is not asking Lars whether Elizabeth is lovable, whether it's easy for him to be my head and to love me as Christ loved the church. He's not asking him if it's easy. He's asking him, do you love your wife as Christ loved the church? So the more we pray, the more God reveals to us what we are. Secondly, prayer is a revelation of God's merciful love. He is a consuming fire. That phrase is used in Deuteronomy 4.24 and in Hebrews 12.29. He is love, and love must at times cause suffering. Love must cause suffering. You parents know that. Every parent probably says at some time or other to his child, 
when he is about to spank him, this hurts me worse than it hurts you. Does the child believe that? Of course not. Not until he becomes a parent, and then he knows that it's absolutely true. What does it do to God, who loves us with a perfect love, when we need to be chastised and chastened? The Bible says he does it because he's treating us as sons, not as bastards. It's the proof that we are his children. His merciful love is revealed through prayer, a love that must sometimes cause suffering. His forgiveness at times takes the form of punishment. It's a very unwise parent who, because the child, the instant he does something wrong and then says, oh, I'm sorry, because he sees that the parent is going to punish him, it's an unwise parent who does not both forgive and punish. Now, I don't mean this is necessarily true every time, but there are times when it is true. There are times when it is absolutely necessary to punish the child, but that does not preclude your forgiveness. Nor does it in God's case. His forgiveness sometimes takes the form of punishment. You remember the story of Moses? who disobeyed God and therefore dishonored the glory of God in front of all the people of Israel by striking the rock when God had told him to speak to the rock. Now, God did not punish the children of Israel for Moses' sin. They got the water that they needed. Moses succeeded in getting results. And this should be a lesson to all of us that success is not necessarily a proof of obedience. It worked but it was disobedience. We are such pragmatists, it's very difficult for us to realize this. We are always looking for success, we're always looking for function, we're always looking for statistics as to whether this or this or this works. And if it works, and we usually think in terms of numbers and money and all of that sort of thing, then it's got to be the will of God. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. But, Although the children of Israel were not punished by not being given water, Moses was punished. And God said, you have dishonored me before the people. You have not upheld my glory. You cannot go into the promised land. And here's this faithful servant of God who had put up with these impossible people for all those years, obeyed God, led them faithfully through the wilderness, had disobeyed in one apparently small thing, but it had something to do with hallowed be thy name. And God punished him. And it's interesting to me that even though Moses knew that he would be punished and that he would never fulfill his dream, he was faithful even from that point on to the end, continued in obedience to God. So God forgave him and God punished him. Love always embraces sacrifice and suffering. And if the love of God has to suffer for us, there are times when our love must suffer for others. And sin is the cause, of course. Death is the only cure. As we said last night, the only deliverance from the self is self-surrender. And God's cure for sin is death and he himself had to pay that price. Self-love 
He's the root of sin. So when God forgives me, he tells me that I must forgive my brother in the same measure in which he forgives me. Jesus forgave us while we were yet sinners. All we can do is repent. We have nothing to offer, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. I don't know how many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress, but I would suggest that all of us ought to read it probably once a year. I certainly haven't done that. But let me read you the wonderful part about when Christian reaches the cross. I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do until it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, he hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood still a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. Now, as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and saluted him with peace be to thee. So the first said to him, thy sins be forgiven thee. The second stripped him of his rags and clothed him with change of raiment. The third set a mark on his forehead and gave him a roll with a seal upon it, which he bid him look on as he ran, and that he should give it in at the celestial gate. So they went their way. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing. Any who have lived a dissipated life and come to Christ usually have far more to say to us who have not had that experience of what forgiveness is about. And I'm one of those people who cannot remember not being a Christian. I was brought up in such a strong Christian home, but I have heard some of the most thrilling stories. Just recently, Lars and I were in Brooklyn, New York, and we had just an overwhelming experience of the difference between dark and light in that wonderful lighthouse of a church, Brooklyn Tabernacle, right there on Flatbush Avenue, in the worst imaginable graffiti and trash and everything under the sun. Here are people whose lives have just gone literally from night to day. We met pastors who have been drug pushers. A woman who gave us her whole story of how she had been on drugs, everything you can think of from age 10 to age 25, and a transformed life. And she just, her face was just radiant. And she said, Elizabeth, this is my Jesus. It's my Jesus. And I'll never forget the radiance of a black face in the choir. I was sitting in front of them, so I had to turn around and look like this. And there was one huge black man there in the choir. There were, most of the choir was black, so there were some whites in there too. But the radiance of that man's face, I don't know who he was, I don't know his story, but the way he sang that name Jesus must have occurred 15 or 20 times in the song, and it was just an ear-to-ear -ear grin. Well, some of you have that kind of story. The utter astonishment that the burden is gone when you bring it to the cross. 
He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. And so, point three, prayer leads me to forgive those who have trespassed against me. Now think of the worst thing anybody has ever done to you. Now ask yourself, did I get what I deserved? And the world will say, of course not. You didn't deserve that. But the Bible tells me that I deserved much worse than I ever got. I deserved death and hell. But the cross has transformed all of that. So whatever the worst thing that's ever been done to you is, look at Luke 7, verse 47. Story of the woman who came into the house of Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came to your house, and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. And it's not until we see Christ on the cross that we can begin to realize what we have been forgiven. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow wounded down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? For the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. None of us has got what we deserved. If we had, we wouldn't be here. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then Jesus goes on after giving them this model of prayer, and he says, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, neither will my Father in heaven forgive you. Now that ought to sober us. As we forgive those who have abused us, as we forgive those who, having made eternal vows in the presence of God and witnesses in a church have abandoned us and our children, as we forgive those who cheated us in business, as we forgive those who have tormented us in all kinds of ways, as we forgive those, even so will our Father in heaven forgive us. Do you say, but how do I do this? Don't wait for your feelings. Do like Corrie ten Boom when she saw that guard coming down the aisle after she'd spoken in Germany. The guard who was responsible 
for the death of her sister Betsy. And she saw this man, and as she saw him coming down the aisle, she sent up an SOS prayer. She said, Lord, I can't greet this man. And she said, in that moment, my hand shot out, and the grace of forgiveness was given in that small, physical, willed act. It has nothing to do with feelings. It's receiving the grace of God by faith. And the more we recognize what God has done for us, what he has forgiven us, the easier it will be to forgive those who have perhaps only done one horrible thing. Think of the ocean of the grace of God. None of us gets what we deserve. So prayer teaches me a father's love, a father's gifts, and a father's forgiveness. I recommend to you that you study the Lord's Prayer, that you go through it slowly, quietly before God, and that you ask him to reveal in each phrase what he wants to teach you out of that today. Father's forgiveness is a revelation of my sinfulness. She loved much because so much had been forgiven. It is a revelation of his merciful love and it leads me to forgive those who have trespassed against me. That's all I'll say on that subject, and I will take the questions now, as many as we can get through. Thank you very much. I have not looked at these, as you can imagine, and I will go through them just as they come to me, let me say at the outset that I have to give as short an answer as possible in a situation like this. I don't know all that's behind, I don't know anything that's behind your question, so I may not say anything that really speaks to what you were trying to ask. I will try to give a scriptural answer, if at all possible. If I can't give you a scriptural answer, I will perhaps give you an Elizabeth Elliot opinion, which is worth next to nothing. You can discard that. I would hope you would be much slower to discard if I give you a scriptural answer. And here's a tough one. I desire for my husband to be the spiritual leader of our home. What can I do to encourage this? You will not encourage him by telling him that he's not being the spiritual leader of the home. You will not encourage him by saying, now here's a book by Elizabeth Elliot. You've got to read this. That'll guarantee that he won't read it and you will not encourage him by preaching him sermons. I think that 1 Peter 3, which speaks to the husband who is not acting the part of a Christian, and the original language there will allow both possibilities, either somebody who is not a Christian or somebody who is not doing what a Christian husband is supposed to do. Any measure of failure, whatever it may be, in what we wives think our husbands ought to be doing, will come under this heading. He says, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. And he goes on to speak of inward beauty and the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. May I see the hands of you women who were born with a gentle and quiet spirit. 
it doesn't seem natural to any of us. It is a work of grace. But the best thing that we women can do for you men is to be women. To be women. To be willing to accept our place as subordinate. And that is a glorious inequality. That's not something to be complained about or angry about. I'm so thankful that the buck does not stop with me. The buck stops with this man over here. God is not going to ask me why I did this or that or the other thing. He's going to ask Lars the final question. Because a husband is to lay down his life for his wife as Christ laid down his life for the church in order to make her pure and holy. So the husband has a far more difficult task. I get very irritated with people who call Paul a male chauvinist because Paul said that wives were to be submissive. Well, of course, that's a much easier command than the command of the husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church. I don't know any man in the world who, in his right mind, would think that he was adequate for that. It takes grace. So be women. Pray for your husband, of course. Do your talking to God, not to your husband. And do not usurp his place by being the spiritual leader. Now, if your husband is not a Christian and you want to train your children in the word of God, then I would suggest that surely it's permissible for the mother who is a Christian to read the Bible and pray with her children and to take that kind of spiritual leadership when her husband's not around. Do it in a tactful way. Do it when he's not there. But don't insist that we are now going to have a reading of the Bible and prayer and you're going to sit there, John, and listen to this. And I'm sure that none of you would do that. Let me say, you're going to have to move Let me, add, let me add one thing for the men. There's no question that the woman next to me has me beat all over as far as spiritual knowledge and knowledge of the Bible and of all the books and everything else. Uh, theologically, I can't hold a stick to her. And uh, we, know, we do know that at home when people answer about this question about, well, how do you get men to, to uh, they feel spiritually inferior and all of that. Let me suggest to the men, all we do at after breakfast, we've got a little thing called daily light, and uh, it's just a small, just straight scriptures. All we do together, I read that, and then I just pray after that meal. There isn't any discussion. And... Uh, it's just simple, straightforward. So if you're a man who has a wife who's far beyond him in, in spiritual things, that's a suggestion to do. That's all you have to do. You don't have to get into an argument or a discussion with her. She's going to whip you every time. <laughs> Please elaborate on what you said when you appeared to be saying some things are not possible for God. I didn't just appear. I meant to say some things are not possible and I get that directly from Jesus' words. If it be possible, let this cup pass. If it is not possible, now why would he have said, if it is not possible? Well, it's within the context of what God wants to do for the world. It is not possible for Jesus to be spared his death on the cross and at the same time to fulfill God's purpose for the world. And the same thing is true of many of the things that I pray about. They are not possible. 
I suppose we could say, in a matter of speaking, physically God could accomplish it, but it is not possible that it fits into thy kingdom come and thy will be done. So the, the fact that Jesus used those words, if it is not possible, gives me boldness to say uh, there are some things that are not possible as long as God wants to save us. Please discuss prayer and the sovereignty of God. What is going to happen anyway and what is changed by our prayers? Why pray if God knows what, it, what is best and gives us what we need if we are not wanting, if we are wanting his will anyway? That's a legitimate question, uh, one that is a common one. I don't think that people realize that God ordained a world in which our choices matter. Our action is already built into the functioning of the universe. God provided the law of gravity, for example, and we live by the law of gravity, but prayer is also a law. So in the mystery of the sovereignty of God, he has chosen to create a world in which prayer matters in which my individual choices matter. So don't ever expect me, maybe your pastor, and you Presbyterians are big on this kind of thing, the sovereignty of God, but don't ever expect me to bring together this stake over here that we drive into the ground. Man has a choice, he is responsible. Over here there is another stake, the sovereignty of God. My second husband was a Presbyterian theologian, and he used to say, you can't bring these stakes together intellectually. He said, no matter how clean you sweep the room, there's always going to be that little pile of dust over in the corner. That, to me, takes care of the question of prayer. God ordained a world in which prayer matters. So it doesn't really, it's not up to me to figure out, am I changing God's mind? God already knew that I was going to pray for something, and he has already arranged that my prayer will make a difference. So pray. I still... Lars reminds me of Pascal's statement, prayer grants us the dignity of causality. I still cannot understand why we are to pray, lead us not into temptation, if he doesn't and can't do that. I don't know how to explain it better than I tried to do earlier. We are asking him to do his will and we know that in order for God to do his will, then we must not be led into temptation. And so we say to the Lord, and this is a human prayer, you know, lead us not into temptation. We probably pray, pray a whole lot of things that don't make any sense from God's standpoint. But he will not lead us into a temptation that would be too great for us to bear. The Bible says, no, tempta no temptation hath taken you but such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not tempt you above what you are able. He will make a way of escape. And some of my prayers have to receive a no, because God knows that, that the answer to that prayer would be a temptation. You know, you're, we're, we're dealing with mysteries. Prayer is a mystery. The sovereignty of God is a mystery. The Trinity is a mystery. I can't, I'm sure I can't satisfy you intellectually on all these things. I don't understand why the Lord would not keep temptation from us sometimes. That's the next question. I'm not going to read all the rest of it. It's a long one, and I don't think I can do any better than what I've tried to do here. Regarding your comments on self-esteem, what should our concept of how we feel about ourselves be based on? On God's estimate. 
What is God's estimate of us? That we are sinners. And we are poor and wretched and miserable and blind and naked. We are helpless without his help. We have nothing to offer him, nothing in my hand I bring. Now, having said that, I would suggest that you read Ephesians 1 if you want to read the wonderful changes that God has wrought in the life of a believer. That just lifts us right up to the heavenlies, out of this poor, wretched, miserable, blind, naked state in which we naturally are. We have nothing in ourselves. God has done all this for us. How can low self-esteem caused by sexual abuse be put into the proper perspective? By bringing it to the cross. There is nothing new under the sun in the way of sin. There are a whole lot of things that seem to be uncovered nowadays that we have never heard of before, but God dealt with it before the foundation of the world. It is not new, it is not a surprise, and it is totally covered by the blood of Jesus. But you've got to bring it and leave it there and remember that he gives you rest by his sorrows and life by his death. We don't have to spend money and endless hours working through all this stuff if we know about the cross. It's a very long and expensive and tiresome detour. I am a single man. Can you give me some suggestions on how to survive as a single in a family congregation? Yes, I would say get married. <laughs> now, some of you will think that is a really facetious answer. And okay, Lars, he's always my sane voice back here. He says, you got to find out what age he is. Well, I don't suppose he wants to put his hand up and say that he's 17. <laughs> But I don't think any single man under marriageable age would ask a question like this. So I am assuming he is of marriageable age. And I'm very serious when I say that I think it is the responsibility of a marriageably old man to get down to business with God before he goes dating around, breaking hearts one after the other, and riding off into the sunset. This happens over and over and over again. My files are full of stories like this. And there's something missing in our understanding of God's will when you don't see that obviously God intends for most men to be married. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms.